Hello, and welcome to episode 75 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On today's episode of the podcast, I talked to Morgan Banville as a part of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series. How sexuality, gendered, or intersectional power relations relate to technology with different explicit uses. So those explicit uses that I'm preliminary thinking about could be something like mental health surveillance and wellness with wearables, different biometric technologies as surveillance. So thinking about the driver's license, social security, and even more recently with vaccination IDs and how they've kind of been monitoring or tracking us. Um, Embodiment, I think, is a really big topic that intersectional surveillance is kind of what I'm calling it. You'll hear more from Morgan in a bit. But first, I want to direct your attention to an event coming up at the end of this week. On Friday, September 17th, the online writing instruction community is holding their September OWI Symposium. From the online writing instruction community website, quote, after an overwhelmingly positive response to our August 2020 and September 2020 symposiums, we are pleased to bring you another series of virtual symposiums in August and September 2021. For both of this year's symposiums, we asked our presenters to focus on activities and strategies for successfully facilitating fully asynchronous, fully synchronous, or hybrid blended online writing courses. This year's presentations will be short, practical, and to the point. The presenters will focus their talks on one practice-based activity, concept, or process that instructors or administrators could implement in their online hybrid writing courses or programs with little or no modification, end quote. For more information about registration, visit the Online Writing Instruction Community website at owicommunity.org. Morgan Banville. She, her, is a native of Dartmouth, Massachusetts, and is a 2018 and 2019 graduate of the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth. In 2018, she graduated as a Massachusetts Commonwealth Scholar and summa cum laude with her Bachelor of Arts degree in English Literature and Criticism and Writing, Rhetoric, and Communication. She immediately pursued her Master of Arts in Teaching, graduating in 2019 with her licenses to teach secondary education, grades 5-12. through 12. As a third-year PhD student, her research interests include the intersection of technical communication and privacy surveillance studies, often informed by feminist methodologies. She is currently the graduate co-editor of the Peer Review Journal, and recently published in the Proceedings of the 39th ACM International Conference on Design and Communication, SIGDOC 21. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Morgan Banfield. Tell me, what's your name, your title and role, your institution? Who are you? What do you do? 
Alrighty, I am Morgan Banville, and I am a graduate instructor at East Carolina University. So I am incoming third year PhD student in rhetoric writing and professional communication. And I've been studying more recently how intersectional identities are affected by you know, pervasive surveillance technologies. So I've been looking at the intersection of surveillance and technical communication, and um, mostly informed by, I would say, a feminist rhetoric or methodology lens. Are you originally from North Carolina? I am not. So I am from Dartmouth, Massachusetts, oh, or wow. originally I am from Fall River. So I was born in Fall River and lived there till I was about six. Um, if Fall River rings a bell for some people, um, those who love true crime, think of Lizzie Borden. That's where she oh. took her axe. <laughs> oh, okay. um, people always uh, associate Fall River with that um, whenever I mention that's where I was born. Um, and then uh, Dartmouth is on the south coast of Massachusetts. So I've lived there my, I would say, majority of my life until moving to Greenville about two years ago. So East Carolina is in Greenville, uh, North Carolina. So you're from Dartmouth. So you did that means you went to school there, right? For your undergraduate degree. Where'd you get your undergraduate degree at? What did you study and how was that experience? Yeah, so I went to the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth um, and that was quite literally five minutes from my house. So I was, I was very lucky. It was in my town. Um, you know, my mom and I would sometimes even go for walks up up the hill to the university, it would be like three miles round trip um, to walk around. We called it Ring Road. Um, we'd go up the hill, walk around the ring and come back down. Um, so it was great. Um, and I studied English literature and criticism there. Um, and I also studied writing rhetoric and communication there. So that's where I got my bachelor's. And um, I did kind of like a three plus one program. So I also got my master's in secondary education mm -hmm. there. Um, so I'm licensed to teach English to grades five through 12 in Massachusetts. Very cool. Have, have you ever done that to talk, talk five through 12? Yeah. So I had to do it as part of my master's. So oh. it's called like a student practicum. I did um, over 450 hours of student oh, wow. teaching. Um, and then I also did, I think it was about 90 hours of observation in different settings. So I observed in a vocational school. It was actually the same vocational school that um, both my brothers had gone to. So one of them's a welder, one of them's a plumber. And um, it was really interesting to kind of be where where they were. Um, and then I also observed in a local private school and then um, the public school that I had gone to. And that's also where I ended up student teaching. So mm -hmm. I was able to teach four sections of English and a film critique course while I was um, part of the student teaching process. That sounds cool. You mentioned your brothers. You uh, a welder, and what did you say your other brother does? A plumber. <laughs> plumber, yeah. Plumber. What did your mom do? What did your mom do growing up? Mom's a, an administrative assistant for the music department at my old high school. So, um, you know, visiting her on lunches and stuff, it was like 
Oh man, I'm back in high school. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So it, she's back there. um, And then my dad is a pest control technician. Very cool. Very cool. So how'd you get into English? How did you fall in love with English? I guess if you are in love with English, I don't know some days if I am or not, but how did you get into it? Uh, Was it high school? Was it one day you were sitting in a class in college and how did you know you wanted to major in that and go on all right into education and then perhaps one day the PhD? Yeah, um, I think it sounds cliche, but I've always been in love with English. So when I was younger, um, from when I could start reading, um, I, you know, would um, enter these, (laughs) this sounds so funny, but um, every summer there was like a local library contest and it would be like, how many books are you going to read? And, um, you know, how many pages are you reading? And I would blow people away every time because not because I wanted to, but just because I loved reading. And that's all I did all of the time. You know, my mom would say, it's time for bed. You have to go to bed. And I'd be like, okay, that's, that's fine. And then, you know, I'd uh, put a little nightlight on in my room and go sit underneath the nightlight and read some more. Um, And I've just always enjoyed it. And, you know, rhetoric for me didn't really, um, come up until I was in college. I hadn't even really heard of the word, but, um, you know, UMass Dartmouth had in their English department, two different paths that you could take as an English major. And I'm like, you know, I really enjoy the communication aspect. I like talking to people. Um, I like teaching. I like you know, the public relations, the journalism side. And that's kind of what they had offered as part of their communication and rhetoric section. And so I I decided to try both. Um, I'm like, you know what? I'm here. I might as well be able to um, see what everything's all about. So I've always liked English and then teaching it at the high school level. I taught seniors um, for, so that was for my student um, practicum. They solidified my love for English, but um, I knew that my heart was for sure um, in teaching more adult learners and, you know, a university college setting. Um, and I had said that when I was in sixth grade. So I was 12 years old and I was like, I'm going to be a professor. Um, I didn't know what I was talking about, but I guess here I am potentially, you know, two, two years away from maybe living that out. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, right. So. <laughs> You're a first-gen college student, right? I am, yes. How has that part of your life, right, impacted your experience in higher education? Oh, it's, it impacted things so, so much. Um, that could be the entire episode. That's the entire I conversation. I realized I was like, <laughs> so ask loaded questions much, host. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I think like one of the things um, I feel fortunate about is just to have, you know, that support system. I recognize that um, not everyone that's a first gen might have that. So like my parents were very, very supportive of me um, and always, you know, supported whatever I wanted to do with schooling and so forth. Um, And you know, going into the university, it was a lot of asking questions (laughs) and hoping that people were receptive to the amount of questions 
that I've asked over the years. So I built really good relationships with my professors and also um, the administrative assistants. I have to shout out Tim Putnam at ECU because he has been, you know, fantastic um, in, in this journey because I'm not just a first gen for undergrad or my master's, but now my PhD as well. So this is all very, very new um, territory. And the people that have assisted me along the way mean everything. And once I was able to, you know, be in this position that I'm in, PhD feels like a whole new world than it was for my master's. Like I didn't have to do a thesis or anything for that. So I had a portfolio during that stage. So even thinking about exams and, you know, dissertation work, um, I'm very behind in that area of, of what is that supposed to look like and what should I be preparing for? Um, and besides the people immediate in my institution and also outside family and friends, I, I've made really great connections with people um, that are part of, say, for example, the CPTSC GSC. So they are um, the grad student committee and we have like writing accountability time and, you know, weekly check-ins, you know, every Monday, like this is our goals for the week. Um, and it's been monumental being to um, being a part of that and kind of having that check-in and also outside perspective. Tell me a little bit more about that, um, that committee. You gave, you gave acronyms, right? Uh, flesh it out <laughs> a little bit and tell us, uh, what's that organization? What's the committee? What do you all do? Promote it a little bit. Sure. So it is the Council for Programs and Scientific and Technical Communication. I think that I got all of the acronyms. Um, <laughs> and they are the Grad Student Committee. And more recently, we've worked together um, on a piece for the focus section for programmatic perspectives. Oh, cool. And we've talked a lot about identity and agency and precarity and the positions that graduate students um, often have to face. And there are other first-gen students in the group as well. So definitely the connection there um, with our experiences and just the ways to navigate, not just the institution, but I think the relationships within the institution um, as well and, and what that's supposed to look like. You know, how are you supposed to address your advisor? How are you supposed to interact with people um, that maybe you don't know on social media? You know, that's, that's a big thing within our field. Um, and there's no guidebook for that. So they've been um, really helpful with that. Um, my section in particular with the programmatic perspectives that we have um, put together is about, um, it's actually collaborated with Emily Grisbrink. Um, and we talk a lot about Sarah Ahmed's newest book called Complaint. So that's coming out in September, but we had access to, I think it was like the you know, intro in chapter one, and we went through and we're like, there's enough quotes here <laughs> to help us and guide us in this whole section um, and talk a bit about the positions that graduate students in and how it can be labeled as 
um, complaint or complainers when we are voicing concerns. Um, so that was a, a really uh, great experience, I think, to be able to partner with somebody and collaborate with somebody that's not in my institution, but potentially has um, similar thoughts and experiences. And I think we collectively feel that way about each of the other sections too. One thing you mentioned struck me, so I want to ask about it. Yeah. You mentioned uh, that some of the discussions you all have had have revolved around graduate student vulnerability on social media. Yes. I don't know if I'm asking for examples, instances, things that you've discussed. I don't know if it's sensitive, but how or in what ways are, are grad students vulnerable on social media? Oh, man. <laughs> in so many ways. I think I talk about this with my students as well, and just the importance of um, social media, I guess you could call it etiquette. Um, you know, for us, it was, you know, in our, um, in our piece, we had used a tweet from a couple of people. And that conversation has come up before with the ethics of using public profiles, public tweets, um, researching those. And so we talked about the ways that we would reach out to that person and make sure that it was okay and use that permission. I've talked about this like with my students and having the public profile versus having the, you know, private profile, if you want to call it private, um, and what that uh, looks like, and kind of those, I guess, pros and cons. Um, and I think as part of the GSC, we haven't dove into maybe those implications, but at least for our paper, we've talked about our position as grad students and you know, interacting with maybe more senior people in the field and those experiences, both positive and, and negative of interactions. Um, I think especially, I just had kind of changed over my Twitter from, for example, from an undergraduate account. Um, I had that for a, a course that I was taking and I was like, oh, so many people are getting information from Twitter from our field. I'm like, I'm just going to hop on and, and make this into like a grad student account and see what all of the buzz is. And I found so much buzz. Um, <laughs> so just kind of navigating that and, and being able to make connections, reach out to people. Um, I mean, that's kind of how we started talking too. Um, yeah, about our panel and yeah. at ETW. And so even just making like those connections and relationships. Yeah. That <laughs> panel was awesome, by the way. That was so awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't remember the names of the other people on it. And I feel horrible, but that panel was fire for sure. I think Megan was on it, right? Megan McIntyre was on it. Yes. Yeah. I'm embarrassed. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Megan. Daniel. Yes. Right, Hoka. I don't want to butcher his name. Oh, I can't remember. I'll have to add it to the show notes or or, or, or the <laughs> ending. I can't remember. I feel badly now, but his it stuff was like cool. A lifetime ago. <laughs> it was a. It was a. It was a lifetime ago. You're from Massachusetts. 
<laughs> We're both in North Carolina now. Yes. How did you get to ECU? So um, I wish it was a more fun story. Than <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Me too, kind of. <laughs> but, but honestly, I knew that I wanted to stay in the East Coast. I'm like, I don't want to go West. I wanted to be, you know, a, a stone's throw away in the sense that from Boston to RDU, so Raleigh, it's an hour and a half plane flight. Um, and it is a 12 to 14 hour drive home and I make it every December. So, um, <laughs> I know all about it. Um, and, and so staying on the East coast, I also wanted the experience of being in a different place and mm. a different state. And I also, um, was really looking for like weather wise as well. And I said, you know what, let me look at a different, a couple of different programs, basically like below Virginia. <laughs> and I applied to places, um, both in North Carolina, like USC, FSU. So university of South Carolina and Florida state university, um, and had to, choose. And really what brought me to Greenville, so ECU, was um, the relationships that I'd already started building with the instructors. I felt like they were very welcoming. I felt like this was going to be a safe place for me to, you know, try and fail and explore and be able to, yeah, just just have um, a support system, a home away from home type thing. And so I moved here by myself um, two years ago. And now I'm, um, you know, my partner, he's, he's living with me now, moved in a year ago. And it's been a great experience. I think the, the faculty and staff have been really helpful. And um, that's really what what sold me on ECU was just how much it seemed they wanted me here. <laughs> More after this. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making and rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and in localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find the Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at the Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Welcome back. I appreciate what you said about, you know, the, the pre-existing prior 
relationships that you're building, like with folks at ECU. I think that's it's one of the reasons I I made my decision when I want to to move to a different part of the country, right? And like you said, try and and perhaps fail. Um, kind of actually why I kind of wanted to come to ECU. I'm glad to be here for sure as well. Yes. <laughs> You arrived at ECU two years ago, though, right? At, so how long into your graduate experience until COVID hit, I guess? Just a year. Um, so, well, I guess, yeah, I guess it would have been a full year because I was in, um, ironically, a risk communication class <laughs> when <laughs> COVID hit. <laughs> um, and I'm like, wow, this... Uh, This was a prime example, despite us not wanting it as an example, but it was a great example as we were going through class because we had started that spring semester in in January. Um, And then we're fully online by that March. And I think that was that happened for um, quite a few institutions, I'm I'm pretty sure. And so it at ECU, I know different PhD programs are a little bit different, but um, we do two years of coursework. And then the third year, um, you are taking exams and you are um, writing your prospectus and defending that. And then your fourth year um, and so on is just writing your, your dissertation for the most part. So when you know the pandemic had hit, it was me in coursework and um yeah it was not it was a difficult time I think we all just thought oh you know as they were saying a couple weeks couple weeks and then it turned into months and now here we are in fall 2021 (laughs) and still so much uncertainty so yeah (laughs) so you mentioned uh exams that's the stage that you're at now right and I believe we were chatting and you've built your first reading list. You're about to start one of your exams, gosh, in a couple of weeks. Don't remind me. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, yes. Tell me uh, a little bit about that exam, what you're doing, your reading list, things like that. Yeah. So I built the reading list this past spring um, and had it kind of finalized before May. Um, And then I spent this whole summer reading. That is when people asked me what I was doing. Um, I was reading every single day for the most part. Um, and so the, that list comprised of a core exam and a, a specialization exam. And so my core kind of centered on readings about rhetoric and technical communication and some feminist rhetoric. And then the specialization I broke up into, um, defining surveillance um, and looking at different case studies because Mm. that's kind of what I was envisioning as part of my dissertation. And I'm not sure I could look back at this, you know, next month after I take exams and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. But for now, what I'm thinking about is kind of splitting it up into different case examples of surveillance in different areas. I think of it like um, SD Beck and Les Hutchinson Campos put out a really, really great uh, collection called Privacy Matters. And the way they separated it was almost into different sections, like 
surveillance yeah. as culture, surveillance with, you know, wearables. Um, and that's kind of how I almost envisioned what I would write for my dissertation. So right now I'm in the position where we're going to be starting um, teaching in a little bit, and I'm teaching a new um, a course I haven't taught before called uh, scientific writing, and I'll be studying for exams at the same time. So hoping to take them um, at the end of September and um, selfishly, it's because I really want it done before my birthday, which is October 9th. Um, <laughs> and I just want it out of the way, to be honest. So yes. I'm like, I want to be yes. able to, uh, turn 25 and not think about exams. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned earlier, right? You take an intersectional approach, right? To some of your case that you're researching your case studies. Tell us a little bit about those, what you're thinking as you perhaps get into the dissertation <laughs> project. Yes, absolutely. So I have like I said, been reading a little bit more about feminist rhetoric. And I think an intersectional approach to surveillance is going to be very useful moving forward. I know some scholars have, have looked at issues of, um, you know, marginalization, neutrality with technologies, um, power relations. And I think that is the direction that I'm headed into as well. So how sexuality, gendered, or intersectional power relations um, relate to technology with different explicit uses. So those explicit uses that I'm preliminary thinking about um, could be something like mental health surveillance and wellness with wearables, different biometric technologies as surveillance. So thinking about the driver's license, social security, and even more recently with vaccination IDs um, and how they've kind of been monitoring or tracking us. Um, embodiment, I think, is a really big um, topic that intersectional surveillance is kind of what I'm calling it, um, could assist with. So looking at what bodies are being surveyed, where, why, how, um, professional surveillance, so different workplace settings, the ten technologies that they use that mimic that labor-based control um, that we saw decades ago, um, but yeah. is occurring in a, a I think, a, a different way. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about those different sections and the overlap, um, I think, is with that intersectionality and what I'm trying to define as intersectional surveillance. And we'll hopefully have that full framework definition um, at the end of exams and into prospectus um, writing. Who are you reading and which scholars are pushing you towards this work in this direction? So, so many scholars are um, so fantastic. It's so hard to like pick and choose, but I think a majority of my list is from SD Beck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like so much, so much of her work, even just thinking about, you know, invisible digital technologies and identities. And um, I think that invisible visible has been really yeah. interesting as a theme looking throughout all of the texts that I've read. Mm-hmm. I really pull from um, Dubrovsky and Magnet's co- um, collection, Feminist Surveillance Studies. Yeah. Um, because there's just so many chapters in there that are just 
fantastic and really great to use as um, examples for really everything that I just mentioned, like biometric technologies, embodiment, all of the above, um, classroom surveillance. And yeah, I, those are, those are the major ones. We use, um, we, as in my cohort, I guess you could call it cohortion. <laughs> Is that what people are saying now? Um, and I, <laughs> um, we just wrote a manuscript um, for the proceedings for SIGDOC this fall. And we looked at classroom surveillance. So we used Walton Moore and Jones three Ps. So positionality, power, and privilege as a framework for that. And I think that their um, book has been so influential for my own work as well. Maybe not explicitly surveillance related, but definitely um, helpful in thinking about power implications and our own positionality and and privilege, especially within the classroom space. Yeah, of course, that's, um, was it technical communication after the social justice turn? Fantastic yep. book. So is your scientific writing class that you're teaching this fall, which I know you're excited about listeners, Morgan just got like the biggest smile on her face about that. Um, is it like a surveillance themed class? Uh, if not, what are you all doing in there? Yes. So um, I feel very fortunate. Um, my, I guess you could say advisor for um, scientific writing this fall is Michelle Ebley. And she has given me the agency to kind of um, pick and choose what I wanted to do with the class. Like there's obviously this sort of like template and outline of what the scientific writing class goals are overall. Um, but I feel fortunate because I'm covering, you know, risk communication, there is risk in science writing, there is surveillance in the classroom. Um, and I'm, I'm looking actually to get in touch with Colleen O'Reilly to talk a little bit about um, her chapter in Privacy Matters, because there is a chapter that kind of walks students through their um, it's, it's almost like an embodied process, I guess you could call it, where students are able to download our browser and kind of take on this persona and see how the algorithm kind of shifts to market to them. And so I feel like that's, like I could talk about it in the class and I will talk about it, but I think that I'm actually going through it and seeing how they are surveyed is an important practice. And just talking about objectivity and neutrality and kind of tying in the ethics. I think all of those main topics that are part of the course will tie in a lot there. Um, and I think that's a good example of an activity. I've never done it before and just read about it. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to trying that out with students and seeing um, what their reactions are and their responses. Are you all, are you online or are you in person? I am in person. So um, tentatively, right? Um. <laughs> We're all tentatively. Over. I think everyone has a, yeah. a second doc or Google doc open. It's like, I'm going to have to move this to online. And it's like, they're all blank. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I, um, I do have my lesson plans like so I have the schedule for the semester but I have like the day-to-day -day lesson planning done for about a month and then it stopped 
because I'm like, I'm not sure how things are going to go. Um, so my day-to-day is planned. That's kind of awesome because, you know, coming into this new position that I have, I, I, I'll i be honest, my approach has been, I'm going to give them, you know, six weeks because yeah. and fully done. And then, you know, I'll build the rest, like, you know, the first couple of weeks of the class. Yeah. But now like your thought process is I'm just not even going to do it because, <laughs> because, because you know we're we're gonna shift online is a much better explanation that would probably actually resonate with them you know like I'm being kind of serious even though I'm laughing <laughs> I was, yeah I think it's helpful for me too because I know basically my thought process was like I need to have lesson planning out until the week after I am going to be done with exams. Yep. And so I have, you know, this month until all of September complete. And then from there, I feel comfortable enough with lesson planning just based on my master's and how much lesson planning I had to do. So <laughs> I know that like I can pull that together really quickly, especially because I have the whole schedule already sorted out. So I know what topics we're going to cover, what weeks. Um, It just, in my mind, I'm like, it doesn't make sense for me to do all of this work right now. And then I learned my lesson from last fall. I really (laughs) did. I I learned my lesson. (laughs) We all learned so many lessons, I know, uh, in our own different ways. I'm there with you. I feel that. Um, are you ready to be in front of students? Not in like a COVID safety way. I understand we, we're all we're all on the same page there, right? Get your vaccination. But like, are you ready to like be in front of students again? Because I have found myself, and I'm starting my 11th year in front of a college classroom, like just absolutely terrified to, to have to be in front of students again. How are you feeling about it? I think it's a mixture of being nervous but also being excited because I really value student relationships. I really like to be in the classroom and I like it to be a space where we can all discuss and we can all ask questions and we can, you know, explore different topics. I take this approach in the classroom where I feel like being transparent, um, especially you know, with students and I'm teaching their, you know, third and fourth year students, they can, you know, see right through (laughs) certain, certain things. And I, I always go into the classroom and, you know, I'm open about different topics in the sense that like, I could, especially with the surveillance activity, I'm going to go in and be like, well, I've never done this before, but we're going to try it out and see how it goes. And then we can, reflect on the experience what could we do better next time what could what went really well and could be replicated again um and that's what I do for nearly every activity I really value student feedback so um I do a mixture of them being able to give feedback to me And then also me asking feedback in the sense, like, how are you doing with the class? I do these like wellness check-ins, I guess you could call them, um, where I ask them, like, how are you doing? Like, are there any, um, you know, concerns that you have? Uh, Is there anything that I can do to assist you better in the classroom? Those type of check-ins. And 
students really respond well to them. They appreciate the fact that somebody is actually reaching out to them and wanting them to do well and wanting them to succeed in the classroom. Um, and I think that I'm always going to have those. Um, and they're not, um, they're not there for everybody else in the class to see, right? So it's like an assignment that they kind of take that little quiz, I guess you could call it, and then um, upload that. So only I'm seeing that and I make them aware that only I'm looking at their responses too. I appreciate that like uh, transparent approach. And I'm doing this for the first time, right? Um, we ask for honesty from our our students. So this like reciprocal transparency thing. I really appreciate that. Also, there's probably an article there for you to write, right? By taking <laughs> that approach, uh, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, that's what I really value for myself when I took courses. It's weird to say when I took them because I feel like I've always been, I mean, I'm still always going to be a student in some capacity, but to be done with coursework is kind of strange for me because, um, you know, I, I didn't take a break in between like a bachelor's and master's and master's to PhD. So I've just been in coursework since I was like, what, five when we go to kindergarten. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, yeah, like five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I always valued the instructors, teachers, professors, whomever, who were upfront with me. Um, and you know, told me what exactly was going on or, you know, if they were trying something new. I don't, students even being on the other side, they know like when something is, is being forced or fake or whatever. And I don't like that in practice. So that's something that I try to be mindful of. What are you going to do this afternoon? <laughs> what am I going to do? Um, Charles, I hate to say it, but I think that I'm just studying for exams. Yeah. I really think I'm going to continue. And my studying process has been interesting because I've asked other people about like, what do you do? <laughs> um, and so I, I ended up building a glossary. Um, Shout out to my advisor, Nikki Caswell is amazing, has been such a good source of support and just not even just like higher ed stuff, but also just outside of that as well. And um, she was like, you need to build a glossary. So that way, when you are writing your prospectus, you can go back in your glossary and you're like, where am I taking this definition from? Um, and I'm like, that is so smart. I really. That I, is brilliant. And I wish I would have had that <laughs> Right. I was like, that is like such a good idea because I'm reading so much and the chances are, I mean, going back and reading a full book cover to cover again are very slim at this point. Um, it's going to be skimming from here on out when I'm writing prospectus and dissertation and so forth. Um, but I did sit and read cover to cover this whole summer. So um, <laughs> that was interesting. But yeah, so I built the glossary. Um, and now I'm in the process of trying to, I guess, make sense of all the ways that I categorize things. So like I was talking about the core exam, how there's like a rhetoric section, like kind of writing about what does rhetoric mean to me? And, and where am I getting these like definitions from? Um, 
and, and surveillance and so forth, just kind of breaking it and sectioning it off and then realizing just the ways that everything ultimately comes to this intersectional surveillance. I'm coming back to that term. You are going to see a framework about this. I'm not dropping it. <laughs> you shouldn't. Absolutely, you should. <laughs> we'll have to talk a little bit more off air uh, about some of your interests. Thanks for sitting with me for an interview, Morgan. It's been exceptional to get to know you a little bit better, and I can't wait to meet you in person soon. Yes, thank you so much, Charles, and thank you for this this platform. I really appreciate it. Hope for a coffee soon in Greenville. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Morgan Banville. She's super smart, and I can't wait to see the way she impacts the field in the future. Keep rocking out, Morgan. This season of The Big Rhetorical Podcast is packed full of interviews with scholars from around the world. We're featuring more emerging scholars this season than ever. We have authors and activists, some established scholars in the field, all coming together in the podcast parlor to talk about their life and their work. It's going to be a blast, so stay tuned. I'll be back next week with another new interview. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not for profit. This podcast was recorded on the sacred lands of the Tuscarora people, and we recognize and respect the people of the Kahari, Eastern Band of Cherokee, Haliwa Saponi, Meharin, Okanichi, Band of Saponi, Saponi, and Wakamal Suen. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by The Grapes, DJ Lang, and Liam Brucklehurst. Mm-hmm.